0: Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. Just as a reminder for all of our episodes, while we love interviewing people who fall far from the norm and interrogating radical ideas, we do not necessarily endorse the views of our guests on this show.
1: In this episode, we interview Dr. Lily Irani, an associate professor of communication and science studies at the University of California, San Diego. She is a co-founder and maintainer of digital labor activism tool TurkOpticon and author of the book Chasing Innovation, Making Entrepreneurial Citizens in Modern India. Dr. Irani's research broadly investigates the cultural politics of high-tech work practices with a focus on how actors produce innovation cultures.
0: Some of the questions that we explore in this interview include, when building and designing ethical AI systems, how can we make room for all of our emotions, including anger at injustice and hope for the future? What is Mechanical Turk, a tool that so many of us in the academy and industry use for our research, and how might it be exploiting labor? What is the intersection between labor justice movements and the AI technology industry? And what is the relationship between technology, power, and liberation, and how do we address this relationship through our design practices? It was a pleasure to speak with Dr. Lily Irani, and we are so grateful not only for her coming on the show, but also for her mentorship as we continue to discern exactly what the future of this Radical AI project holds.
1: Well, first and foremost, Lily, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for coming on to chat with us today.
2: Thank you for doing this. It's really great that we have a space to talk to each other. Dylan and I are
1: such big fans of your work, as are many other people in this community, but before we jump into your research, we actually want to start by asking you a question of um, what... Or why do you do the work that you do? And this is asking what motivates you, not just as a researcher, but also in life in general?
2: Um, in terms of life in general, well, I used to joke that life in general what motivated me was anger. Um, <laughs> I think for a lot of my career, it was seeing stuff that just pissed me off or seemed wrong. And of course, what pisses people off is really personal and is really shaped by their histories. Um, and then trying to do something about it. I think that there's so many things to be angry about that that gets really exhausting and it can burn you out. So now I think about it not just in terms like, well, here's something I'm angry about, but with something where like you know, for the love of one another we're going to fight to change this together because we need it to survive and have the world that we need um, but that's all very abstract <laughs> i think a lot of the weird you know i study innovation um and i kind of and i critique it from like a labor perspective from gender perspectives and the amazon mechanical turk projects that i do also come from this commitment to the fact that mechanical Turk work is important and it's necessary and people who do it you know, deserve just as much pay as anybody else. And I think for one of the places that comes from for me is kind of seeing my mom growing up. Uh, she was, in, she, my parents are from Iran. They came over here after the revolution. My mom was a secretary in Iran. She didn't go to college. She worked at IBM. In the 70s, secretaries were learning how to program computers, <laughs> so like my mom was a program basically a programmer in Iran as a, as a secretary someone without a ton of social status and then we come over here and I'm growing up in the Clint like Bill Clinton's 90s and it's all about computers are the future and programmers are amazing and I'm like wait like my mom wasn't getting any of that credit I don't understand I was also I was a computer science major in college like I was really to computers in the 90s making web pages and um like, so I could kind of see the contrast. I could see that I was like being pulled into like, do, struggling to be a woman in computer science and taking one for society in what was not really inviting culture. And then seeing that my mom, when she was doing the same work, she wasn't honored at all. So I think that's one place that some of my work comes from. And trying to figure out why I was being valued and my mom wasn't, it kind of opens you up to a lot of little mysteries about, well, what is skill? How is it valued? <laughs> How is that shaped by gender, history, like geopolitical location? like, um, And, you know, how do we get recognition for what we do, um, even if it's not the things that people want to give us recognition for, like housework? All of that's kind of, those are some things that are in the mix for me.
0: I I, um, I want to jump back to where you started this, which was about anger. Um, and, and I think sometimes uh, when we have these conversations about technology, ethics, and about justice, uh, anger almost gets this like bad rapper. It's taboo in some way. Like we're trying to make the world a better place. We're trying to all come together. And certainly that's part of it, that community aspect. But I think this concept of like righteous anger is so important for motivating our way forward. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about that, about like, is there an appropriate amount of anger or how do we use that emotion of anger in justice work in technology?
2: This is an amazing question because this is Like, I'm like, I don't know. Let's talk about it (laughs) to figure it out. And that's maybe where the magic will be. Um, Yeah, like I used to get so upset with kind of design thinking, moral injunctions to only have positive feelings, only have optimism in a brainstorm. There are no bad ideas. Because like for me as a designer, I was like, wait, critiquing how this works is like one of the ways that I generate ideas like why are you telling me the negative emotions are a problem and of course like Sarah Ahmed is this feminist philosopher and she's written tons about the mandate to be happy um, and how the person who names the problem in a room becomes the problem in the room Um, and you know and a lot of people don't have the luxury of not being angry you know like black feminists have taught us a lot about that and what happens when you know, like say white feminists get uncomfortable um, with that anger. So, the, yeah, there's a lot to be said for the value of anger. Um, it, it's about being attached to there being something better, it's about kind of directing your energies and what needs to be changed. I think sometimes I get the sense of, like people kind of like love. A good rant because it kind of articulates something that they can't put their finger on, and like that's actually kind of empowering. It's like if you speak out, then you help other people speak out and find words for stuff, and other people do that for me. So that's all in the plus column. <laughs> and uh but one of the things that was happening to me with COVID the first couple of weeks is It's like watching the news, I'm freaking out because like all this debate about like UBI or are you going to like wait means test and are you going to make people go to an office and fill out a form to prove that they need the money? And I was like, like the offices aren't going to be able to handle that load, you know? And so I was just, maybe it's not just anger, it's actually just being overwhelmed emotionally and not knowing how to proceed. And so I think one problem with like any kind of emotional overwhelm is if it kind of, exhausts you or if it keeps you from actually sustainably kind of pushing towards the things that need to change um with anger specifically I think a lot of the times I was being angry because maybe I was coming out of like suburban upbringing and computer science life is I didn't have a sense of like you know you need to be angry with like other people so you can like work together and organize like I never learned anything about organizing and so the anger wasn't maybe being it being matched with the kind of joy that hope, the joy and hope that comes with working with other people, um, and then, I guess sometimes, and I guess like sometimes what happens is when you're trying to work get other people involved, like if they're kind of burned out on the negative emotions too because they're dealing with a lot of stuff also, then having reasons to be excited about what you can do together and have it feel like the work is a good part of your day is important um and so something other than anger is necessary to like keep movements building but there's a lot of people who know a lot more about this than I do (laughs) I just read Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown and when I first read it when I first bought it I'll, I'll be real like you know I was like learning about you know I was learning about a lot of a lot about different kinds of labor organizing and community organizing and I couldn't really relate to the all the positive and healing and introspective work that that book introduces. And after doing a lot of organizing work more over the last year since my book got done um, and I wanted to turn my research into actual changes (laughs) in the things that we study, uh, you know, after having that like lived experience of kind of getting much more deeply involved in the uncertainties of organizing and like the, Hope and exhaustion, of like building lots of relationships and trying to like get us to do stuff together. Then the book made a lot more sense. <laughs> so I know that there's people who've been through this a lot longer and have a lot of amazing things to say. And a, I mean, maybe you can interview some of them too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Jumping on a few phrases that you mentioned in your response, there in terms of building movements, organizing, and change making, you do a lot of this in your work. I'm wondering what has motivated you to uh, become this person in your in the way that you utilize your research and how you go about doing that.
2: Um, my well, I guess it kind of is when I first started doing research when I was an undergrad. I started doing research because there was a problem that was you know that felt bad for me and my friends like I was in computer science there weren't a lot of women uh I felt dumb a lot and then I started talking to friends around my junior year and they were like I feel dumb too wait we all feel dumb but like we're not dumb what (laughs) uh so we started as women in computer science group but we didn't want it to be kind of like a corporate HR you know recruiting women into jobs but not actually changing the the conditions of exclusion in computer science culture. Uh, we were finding the words for those things too. So, so that I did my undergrad honors thesis on like where women fall out of the CS pipeline at my school. So like research is always something that was meant to help organize in some sense, even if I didn't have the language. It was just like we're you know we have a club, <laughs> we're doing stuff, and then with grad school when I started working on the Amazon Mechanical Turk stuff, you know. I guess it was just always, I always grew up being the kind of kid who, like, participated in clubs or, like, knocked on doors for, like, getting out the vote or, you know, delivering directories for fundraisers. And so I think I came out of that kind of more just community service mindset. And then as I learned, as I tried to see changes in things like trucking wages with the Amazon Mechanical Turk work, I was realizing, like, oh, doing community service through software actually hasn't raised Turkers' minimum wages. Like, Turkopticon, this project I've worked on for 10 years where workers can write reviews of their employers. Like, yeah, workers definitely make a little bit more money because they avoid requesters who have bad reputations for wage theft. But, you know, we still have a set of laws that allow Turkers to get paid whatever rock-bottom wage requesters want. And so I think, like... I've only I've actually only really started to learn about organizing and in some sense not doing community service or feminist software building because I actually don't think like feminist software building is organizing. Uh, And I don't mean that as a slam on feminist software builders like me. It's just like we built the software, we maintained it for 10 years it was you know, if you don't have a community that can bring labor and time and their relationships into helping maintain the software, bringing new people in, like getting uh you know, getting money from the community to like help pay for servers, getting uh relationships, you know, and so you so you can get people into a meeting to say how you know, can we change the root cause of this thing, like the law or the policy or Amazon's platform design, like you can't do all that other stuff like you're like our feminist software building was kind of like running on a treadmill making things better a little bit in a really labor-intensive way organizing is like pointing to the horizon and saying what are the relationships and resources that we need to get towards that horizon not just what's the thing that i know how to do that i can kind of contribute and like hope somehow magically i get to that horizon with no broader strategy of other kinds of acts that i do with other people
0: yeah, I know for for me, before I got back into academia, I had no idea what the uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk was in the first place. Um, and it might be the case for some of our view- uh, listeners as well. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just very basically what that system is and why it exists in the first place. And then maybe talk a little bit about the uh, work that you're doing with TurkOpticon and why it's so important.
2: So Amazon Mechanical Turk is kind of like, Uber and Lyft for data processing in the sense that what it is a it's a platform, it's a marketplace, it's a workplace where programmers or companies or academic researchers who they have a bunch of audio they need transcribed, or they have a stream of user-generated content, like pictures people are uploading to Facebook and they need someone to look at it and be like, is this porn, is this not porn? Uh, or they have like surveys or research experiments, like cognitive experiments, like, for, you know, like that stuff all goes into the Amazon Mechanical Chart Platform. The people who need that work done, they can put a price per task. And then pe- workers all over the world, but more than half of them are in the United States, and come and take those tasks and do them as a kind of cognitive piecework. Uh, some of the, So the reason why I say it's like Uber for data processing is that workers are positioned as independent contractors in Amazon's terms and conditions. Now, workers who are in California could be recognized as employees under the new um, law AB5, um, but they would be employees of the requesters, the employers, the people who have the transcription task, for example. It's a little more confusing as to whether they. it's not... A per- uber's not a perfect analogy amazon it's not clear that they would be the employer in a lot of the cases um the workers have no minimum wage because they're independent contractors um, and they you know because they don't show up at a central workplace where they can actually talk to each other uh it was re- it's like really hard for them to share information and engage in mutual aid or like get organized around things that they want to improve and so the Tricopticon project started in 2009 out of a tactical media art project uh, class, and we, I was asking workers, you know, what do you like about this work? What don't you like about this work? And then I also asked if you could have a Turker's bill of rights. What would it be? And a lot of workers said, um, you know, like it's not fair that employers can just take, they could take our work and then decide whether it counts as good work or not, and then decide not to pay. Amazon gives the employer, the requester in that system, that right. So. There's a lot of stuff they didn't agree on, but like that was one of the things they did agree on. So we built Copticon as a way of helping create a reputation for employers. Amazon's platform has a reputation system for workers, but not for employers. Um, it really privileges the needs of the employers um, because the employers are the ones who are using Amazon's web services, and that's a core business area for Amazon. If they can get workers to come work because the workers need the money because they have a disability or they can't find another job where they live, Uh, because, you know, they need the extra money on top of their second or third job. Like, you know, the workers will come work for Amazon because they need it. And so Amazon privileges the people they're chasing, which are the employers.
0: And when I first heard about it, I actually heard of uh, the Mechanical Turk as this kind of... um the paramount of innovation, right? As like this next step of how we, and this was this was a little while ago, right? So, and this, I can see your face right now. So this is different, but, but it's like, it's like oh, okay. So now, you know, people can control their own destiny and, and it's a way for data to advance in that way. So that was the first argument that I heard pr- kind of pro. Um, and I know you do a lot of work in innovation and, and I think this is a great kind of case study uh, for what what should we be thinking about like innovation and how does that relate to labor organizing?
2: Okay. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. So like, what does an innovation mean for labor organizing? And um, why did Mechanical Turk seem like magic to a lot of people? So yeah, when I found out about Mechanical Turk, it was because I knew people from when I was working before grad school, I worked at Google and I knew people who'd worked at Yahoo and had search engine kind of search engine startups. And they were using Mechanical Turk to do kind of testing whether the algorithm is returning better search results, for example. And they were, and also the field of HCI, people were saying like, this is gonna enable whole new kinds of technologies that have humans in the loop that um, kind of cover the ground that AI can't cover and let us big build bigger and more powerful information systems. I mean, there's like so many things about innovation that mechanical culture kind of lays bare. But if you kind of start Going down the rabbit hole, like one is that artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence it, is a name we have for algorithms that produce, kind of cor- produce correlations or outputs given an input that seems sensible to human beings. Like something looks artificially intelligent if it responds to Justin Bieber by associating it with pop star as opposed to person or something. Like something that's like culturally obvious to us. Um, but culture always changes, language always changes, haircuts change, what clothes are cool, what clothes are cool change, slang changes. So artificial intelligence will always need a human layer of input to tell it, are you know, these are the correlations that are sort of culturally valid right now, to calibrate the AI to culture as it shifts. And that's what Amazon Mechanical Turk workers do. They basically automate culture um, by training algorithms to see it like they do. So, you know, th- when we talk about programmers being the source of all of this amazing value that tech companies create by creating artificial intelligence, like those programmers you know, are getting massive amounts of help, like without Amazon Mechanical Turk workers being there, like their AI would not look intelligent at all. Um, I mean, another thing that i thought a lot about is how you know, when programmers kind of when programmers frame what they do as just an act of coding, you know, that they get to look like, you know, they're the, the, they're the ones innovating, but what we don't see under the hood is in systems like Amazon Mechanical Turk, workers are constantly trying to get in touch with, employers like programmers and tell them hey like your task is designed wrong or like hey this question that you're asking actually doesn't really make sense. They like give basically free management consulting uh, to these to these requesters and help them work on their tasks if the requesters know how to listen uh, they don't get any credit for being part of the kind of process by which we kind of get new things um, Then also like I think with labor organizing, you know it's also I think highlighting the ways that all kinds of workers are essential to the process of innovation is crucial because you know, listen, we all hear those stories about how programmers are more important than the rest of us. They're more important than teachers. So we can have automated teaching systems or MOOCs that like make platforms that you know make individual teaching labor less arduous. Um Turkers hear those stories too. And so, showing how all of our work matters, the communicative work, the non-automatable stuff, uh, is the first way we're going to have a chance of believing in ourselves enough to ask for what we deserve.
1: I want to latch on to a comment that you made about the computer scientists that are making these platforms, like Mechanical Turk. Coming from computer science myself, this is a question that I ask a lot, (laughs) Um, how do you think that design decisions in technological systems play into societal harm and uh, positions of power?
2: Wow. We were just talking about this in the design lab yesterday because at UCSD, because we're trying to create a curriculum for a specialization. I, yeah, I think that we, we were talking about ethics and we were talking about whether, you know, we want to be teaching all designers about ethics or whether we want to teach them about marginalization and power and then I mean, we actually want to teach them about both but i was start i you know i was starting to think about the, the difference between a designer and a doctor is that a doctor you know sees a patient talks to the patient has to make judgments about ethical ways to avoid harm um, and make a judgment on how to act in that moment but a designer creates a system that's going to then be deployed in mass in some way. Like the history of the word designer is a de- is actually out of the industrial revolution. When artisans went to the factory, the artisan who used to be the designer and the maker laborer, and they could make the vase or the plate however they felt like in that time, became a kind of division between the designer who plans how the plate should look and they tool up the assembly line to do that, and then the the worker has to go to the assembly line and make the plate look how the designer makes it look, right? So designers and kind of designers make the rules and arrangements that kind of scale out. And so in that sense, I think designers actually have the capacity to do huge amounts of harm. And UX designers get taught that our job is to advocate for the user. I was a UX designer at Google, but we get taught nothing about what happens when your advocacy for the user isn't getting anywhere in the organization. You don't learn about how power works in organizations. I didn't learn anything about how capitalism is, you know, uh, stock structures, like, who owns the company, What, how they're trying to grow into new markets, like how all of that's actually going to affect, what kind of agency I have to advocate for the user. We didn't learn anything about how we, as being trained as professional designers, are being placed into a kind of privileged class position that makes a lot of the things that we even know, how, like makes us unable to even ask a lot of the questions about what would cause harm to the users. Like, how do you check that kind of privilege? How do you create spaces where you not only listen, but are accountable to ask new kinds of questions? Um, and we need a kind of design where designers, we, we keep the kernel of what got us into design, which is we wanted to make technology and the companies that build them accountable to people at large, but we also need to learn the limits of doing that through kind of the professional expertise that is what counts as human centered design now. Like We need to learn to work with movements, work with organizers, amplify their efforts, use our ability to kind of imagine possible future configurations for technology to like help those movements, like make demands on the technologies that they're you know, trying to shape. We need to like disaggregate design and re-aggregate it as something that's a better comrade. I was uh, recently
0: uh, as in today. So I'm in my doctoral program. And one of the things that we're learning is how to teach ourselves. And uh, so I was instructed as an assignment to make a, Uh, teaching philosophy statement. Um, And I started writing and I came to this word uh, liberation and that being core to my teaching philosophy. And then my professor uh, asked me to be more specific about what that meant. And I'm still in the process of rewriting that statement. Um, But I'm wondering for you and your teaching philosophy and your design philosophy, what role that concept liberation, or maybe another word that might resonate more with you, like it'd be power or, or something like that, um, what role does that play in design or should that play?
2: Yeah, I, when he said, you said, know, I was asked to be more specific about liberation, and I'm still in the process of rewriting that statement, I feel like that actually is probably how I think about what fighting for liberation is. Liberation language is not a language I was familiar with, you know, coming through being computer science, SoCal kid. Uh, It's a word that I've heard, you know, black feminists use, um, activists use. And I guess part of, Maybe part of the magic of the word liberation is that it lets people define that for themselves, like what that kind of autonomy with their community would actually mean to them. And so liberation is not a thing. Liberation is a horizon to which we hold each other accountable in the work that we do and in the society that we're fighting for. And so I would say that if, you know, I would like to work towards a teaching philosophy and a design philosophy that figures out strategies for doing that when you're, Wrangling chairs in a classroom—you don't get to pick how big your class is, or when you're wrangling a bunch of code that's gonna crash sometimes, um, and not, you not—you know, very few people know how to kind of change change the code because peop- not everyone gets to learn how to code or gets those educational resources invested in them. So, so so it it'll, it'll look different. The tactics will look different, um, and I think we have a lot of work to do in the kind of computing science design worlds. Of figuring out like what those tactics are because like all of our tactics and methods or so many of our tactics and methods that we learn institutionally are coming out of how do we go become good employees for technology companies um like but communities also build technologies <laughs> like words pencils and silicon they are all ways of doing things
1: <laughs> yeah this is definitely a relatively recurring theme. Uh, It's definitely in my research, but also in these interviews, as we talk to people about AI and ethics, this notion of trying to incorporate things from the humanities and the social sciences into classrooms where people are learning uh, computer science and design. And uh, from your experience teaching, I'm, I'm curious what it's been like and what your experience has been trying to teach some of these concepts that are really important in design, such as liberation and power and the consequences of your design decisions, and um, what the response really has been from students who might come from a humanities background versus a technical background and how you can deal with some of those potential mismatches.
2: Um, Yeah, so Christo Sims, who's in my department at UCSD, and I designed a class called Critical Design Practice, and we wanted to We didn't want to have a class where students would come in and go try to save other people by doing good. And so the core task you have in that class is to choose an issue on the campus that affects you and then, you know, choose one that your group is all kind of behind working on and figure out how you're going to design something that intervenes in public understanding, awareness, interaction around that issue and like gets you more allies. And so we actually teach some organizing tools like the spectrum of allies, like how do you get someone from neutral to more on your side or how do you activate someone um, to really like do something with you. We teach about Uh, kind of the ethics. like We we use the yes men and some of the work that they've done and also some of the criticism that they get uh, to talk about the ethics of, you know, when you're trying to do activism kind of on your own behalf, but you go in and start talking about other communities that you want to bring into the fold. Like, are you really accountable to those communities or how do you make sure you're not doing harm to the people that you want to be in alliance with? Uh, And we tend to get students, we tend to get like a subset of STEM students who've heard about this and they kind of get the sense that something is off in the classes that they've had. Like they have these all these technical classes and it's not really speaking to them in some way. And so then they come to our class and they start to find some language for being able to contrast like what's missing in those other spaces. Because I had this experience too. It's like something is wrong, but I think it's probably... But I couldn't put my finger on it in computer science and in HCI. So I was like, it's just me. Like, this research is not interesting enough. I haven't found the right topic. Like I'm not reading the right thing. Like, I'm not, you know. Um, So we want to say, it's not you. (laughs) It's that these these practices were not set up to actually allow you to have your full voice. (laughs) Um, The STEM, the humanities, the more humanities students who come in, you know, they don't they often know how to build stuff in code, but they can use amazing tools on the web to build all kinds of stuff like mock-up websites. Somebody made like an alternative, rate my professor, where instead of rating how easy or hot your professor was, it would get people to reflect on classes five years down the line and say, what did you remember from this class? So you're kind of critiquing like how we think about your classroom. It's like one of my favorite projects. Um one group of students designed an alternative syllabus for our class, <laughs> so they challenged our power as teachers. Um, students, you know, are, have a lot more savvy than I do about how to make movies, and so we also open up design beyond the kind of computational bias we have. Like we think we privilege. So like this is the stuff I research in my book, Chasing Innovations. Like we privilege design as a field post sort of like 2004 because design is linked to creating intellectual property and in particularly creating intellectual property in, um, you know, in industries like tech um, or industries that create like cultural products like Nike, you know, where you want to create kind of copywritten content that there's a lot of, but if design, if you strip design away from this kind of brand or coding design thing, like, and it just becomes about making things that poke social interactions and provoke them in a different direction, then the humanities students have a lot to say. But it's been an interesting challenge because it's harder to find teaching materials that talk about design without kind of assuming it's about computation or it's about making objects that somebody in a factory is going to make for you after you design it. So... So we use, we use movies, we use activist projects as examples, we teach them how to think critically about the designed objects in their world, um, and we just let them take it from there.
0: For me, in my experience, coming from the humanities, one of the gifts that the humanities can bring is the transformative power of telling stories and that being able to impact the world. And I know you as an ethnographer and someone who uses ethnography, there's a lot of storytelling in that and in your research. Uh, And I'm actually wondering if there is a particular story, either from your research or from your life, uh, that's on your heart right now in talking about these topics or more.
2: Um, That's such a beautiful question. Uh, I think I was late to the transformative power of stories because in computer science, I so learned to privilege, you know, pushing bits around to push the world around. (laughs) Um, But I kind of came to the power of stories through writing my book um, because one of the ways that I started to think about writing my book is I kind of worked harder and harder on like, why am I spending 10 years telling these stories? Am I telling them just to get tenure? No, like I'm telling the stories in that book because I'm writing for people who are like the designer that I was when I was 24, 25, 26. And I had things that... I thought were wrong in the world and I wanted to kind of have agency to change it. And I was told that design was the language that I had to do that. And so I, you know, each of my book chapters is organized around a story. So even if you don't care about academic theory, um, which like there's lots of reasons why a lot of people don't at different points in their life, um, I find it helpful sometimes, uh, you know, like the story illustrates the problem. And so when you ask the story that's on my heart, this. The story that I found myself telling a lot while I was working on my dissertation around... um, So my dissertation and the book are about designers in India who are trying to make the world a better place and kind of build up India by doing design and social entrepreneurship because that's that's what they're told is the main way they should challenge their energies. It also so happens that by channeling their energies in that direction, they repeatedly, over the years that I was working with them, ended up applying their efforts to projects where you know they would do field work so this one particular story like they were doing field work in rural Andhra Pradesh or for a project around clean water and they would go you know 200 kilometers over several weeks like getting up at 5 a.m getting in the car like bringing translators to so that you know because they speak Hindi or maybe um Different regional languages, but not the language that was spoken in They're like working so hard to get people's stories about what they need from clean water. And one of the things they hear over and over is, we have too much fluoride in the water in this re- in this area, and it can cause fluorosis, which can cause paralysis. But to the funder, and to the NGO that hired the studio, clean water just meant bacterial filtration, because that's what the world that's what the World Health Organization prioritized, because that's what met you know seemed like a global and scale enough problem fluorosis was seen as more as like a china india problem that's like a huge part of the world's population but funder didn't prioritize it and so then the designers were like okay well everyone's asking us for a fluoride water filter but the funder is dedicated to learning what they can to get these people to buy a bacterial water filter anyways because in some sense development rides on the assumption that at the end of the day people have ideas about what they could want but the funder knows what's the really important thing. And so you use people's ideas about what they want to make the appealing thing that still accomplishes like the Gates Foundation's goal. So that story haunted me because when I started my dissertation, I didn't think it was going to be a big critique of innovation. I was just interested in how do you make design methods relevant to, you know, work in India when they've come out of Europe and the U S. And that was the post-colonial computing work that I had done. But that story kind of made me go, everything I learned in UX was a lie. <laughs> like that you're supposed to go out, you're supposed to listen to people, and you're supposed to build the thing that the people are asking you to do you know, in a way that works for them. It's like, that is not what happened. And like I have to embark now on understanding why that is not happening. So um, you know, one part of that story was about spending the next long while learning about kind of political science and anthropology (laughs) to understand why that happened to me and what other designers need to know to understand why that stuff happens to them um one part of it was about like recognizing that like as a designer on that team and the other designers who were on that team none of us asked hey okay, like, are there other movements in the area that are trying to work on this issue? Can we help them? Can we tell them about some of the stuff that we've learned in our ethnography? Can we go, like, tell journalists that we're hearing about this and we think it should be a story? Like, none of that even occurred to us because, of, you know, like, I, I learned my civic education in the U.S. So, like, get out the vote for who they tell you that you have the option of voting for and make the world a better place through tech. So um, So in some ways, like, the book became a way of amplifying the things that I had to learn to understand why this thing that really violated my hopes for design had happened. And then my hope was that people who read the book can kind of shortcut that process and not have to take 10 years to to figure out why, you know? So I ended up trying to, I was, I'm hoping that the story is something that resonates not just with scholars of critical information, studies, but also with actual designers who deal with the stuff in their daily life.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that story. I can imagine myself um, there in that 5am setting in the morning. um...
2: Can I just add something super quickly to that? Like, I just want to like give credit to like the designers that I was working with, like they would stay up to like 5am sometimes talking about this stuff themselves, like ranting, being like, why is the funder being like this? Um, So it's not like they don't notice and they don't care. But One of my friends who was at that studio, when she read my book, The History Chapter, she when she read like the history of how design's been set up, kind of in general, but also in India, she was like, Oh, I didn't actually know any of that history. Like that history kind of explains how like it's not just about me like advocating to the client better. It's actually, you know, about like a lot of the assumptions that are built into like how we do our work and who we do it with. And so I don't wanna say like take credit like I saw something, it's just like I had like, okay, I'm going to put my time to helping out my fellow design co-workers by working on this part of the movement, which is like excavating why this crap keeps happening to us.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And it really, it speaks to the like interdisciplinary nature of this kind of work so much too, like understanding the history and the cultural aspects and the social sciences, and then also the design aspects of everything. And I know your background is also very colorful and interdisciplinary computer science and anthropology and a little bit of feminist studies and informatics and um, something that we like to do on this show in a way to uplift and Uh, hopefully normalize greater diversity in this field is to ask you two questions as the name of our show is Radical AI. Uh, We would love to know first what the word radical means to you and uh, how you might situate yourself and your work in that radical space.
2: Yeah you know it's funny like my first emotional reaction to the word radical was this little tinge of sadness where Radical to me sometimes means marginal, and um, when people use radical in the United States, they often use it as in a disparaging way, like "oh that's too radical," "oh that's a radical," um, and so I had this reaction where I was like, "I I don't I don't want to be I don't identify as a radical I identify as someone who wants to clearly." identify the things that are actually happening in the world and even if it involves having to be if it involves being kind of collaborative or if it involves being adversarial you know I'm not okay with a world in which there's not room for all of us to thrive um and so that's kind of if that's what being a radical means then you know I think people sh- I think all people should like radicals um so maybe in that sense a radical is also a challenge to kind of Think harder about, am I including you know, am I including everybody's liberation and the vision of liberation that I'm working for and like how can I challenge myself to do better about that, and so it can be something we can kind of also use to push ourselves to learn and listen to histories that are not, don't tend to be given over to us <laughs> by default. One of the
0: things that we've been uh, talking about amongst ourselves and with guests is that there are actually a lot of people who in these tech spaces, including yourself, who are working for liberation for all, or at least trying to, trying to navigate these spaces, um, and the question seems to be how, (laughs) how we bring all these divergent, uh, paths that we're taking together into a singular movement. Uh, And we're drawing a lot from, you know, community organizing and and labor organizing as well, this concept of a movement and and bringing us together from disparate places. Uh, And I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you have advice on how we might do that?
2: Do you think, so is is the vision that you have about creating a movement around radical AI? Because when you said bringing us together in a singular movement, that kind of surprised me because I don't think of, I don't think of myself as, trying to create a singular movement. I think of myself as participating in different movements and then trying to think about what could be the connections and coalitions between those movements.
0: I think it's still very live. So even when I use that kind of terminology, it's still trying to like actively define whether it is a single movement or multiple movements. And then again, that like, how do we how are we even defining movement? Is that even the right language? Uh, that we should be using for this i
2: guess i think of the language thing as does the language do something that's helpful for you at the time and so i started thinking about re- so when i was thinking about my research and the ways that academia tries to get us to make powerful brands and compete with each other and feel bad when somebody publishes something that you kind of wish that you'd written i was like this is actually really bad for making the kinds of changes we say that we want to see in the world <laughs> Um, and so I was actually trying, I was talking to some of my students and even just to myself, like, what does it look like if I treat research like a social movement instead? Um, or if I, if I treat the people who are doing research around like say labor as a social movement, then it's, you know, it's a high five if other people publish on stuff that resonates with the stuff that I'm publishing. Like we should be collaborating with each other to see, Hey, can can we like organize ourselves better to be more useful to some of the communities that, um, you know, have stakes in the issues that we're writing about, like it kind of changes to think of ourselves as participating in a movement. It changes the actions that we take. And those are not often the actions that academic uh, institutions want us to take. Like they want us to publish stuff or sometimes they like community engaged work, but it's like the individual or a few, a team that goes out and engages the community as opposed to getting organized into something that's like already happening, uh, changing your research agenda to be more relevant to a struggle that's currently unfolding. Um, So in that sense, I do find movement to be helpful because it, at least within academic research, it opens up the possibilities of what we do. Um, But that doesn't really answer your question about like, how do you do it? (laughs) Uh, I don't, you know, the way the way I always think about it is like, start where you are. If, if you're like involved in something and you think that something that's happening is not right, then, you know, go find out who else agrees with you <laughs> and then talk about, okay, like, like I'll give an example. I, I mean, for like tech work for, I'll give an example for a tech worker coalition. So like one of the things that tech worker coalition does is like they'll host ethics lunches at the companies that they're in. Is, you know, there's a lot of debate as to whether ethics is a language that gets us to think more about individual judgment rather than social justice. But at the end of the day, like, eth- there's a lot of people in tech workplaces who think a lot about, am I being ethical right now? Because that's the language they have to think about that dissonance between, like, their values and what it is they're being asked to do. And so if ethics is the language that gets them to the lunch table, then you can, like, work together to build out a, an analysis of, like, well, why are we? being forced to do stuff where it's dissonant with our values. And you can open up the conversation to some of the real causes of that. You know, Um, that's what the Google Maven people did. So I think you should use a language that brings people to the table and then find the language that we need to actually see and work on the thing we're trying to change. (laughs) And we start where we are, because where we are is where we're being asked to produce value. Um, whether it's as renters or as workers or as teachers or as researchers and um, push and kind of push from there (laughs) because that's where we have strong footing and like deep practical insight into like the mechanisms that we're trying to change.
1: There's clearly so much more we could talk about in this realm and in your research in general, but unfortunately we are out of time with this interview. So we just want to close by saying thank you so much again, Lily, for coming on the show today.
2: Thank you for asking such interesting questions and thanks for making a space where more of us can share knowledge with each other and find new questions and find better ways of working in, in movement.
1: We want to thank Dr. Lily Irani again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And Dylan, what is your first initial reaction to this interview that we had?
0: For me, I think the most impactful uh, moment was when we started talking about the power of stories and the transformative power of stories specifically. And that's something for me, right? I, I know I play the minister card all the time, but it's something for me that's, that's really important because I truly believe that telling stories is how we change the world and how we change lives. Uh, and some of the stories that, uh, Dr. Irani shared, uh, with us, especially from her own background were, uh, They were really inspirational to me. Um, Was there a particular part of Dr. Irani's story that resonated with you, Jess?
1: Yes, (laughs) all of it. I was just really excited to hear that so much of her history and background played into her motivation for the research that she does, especially two things in particular that really stood out to me. The first one was the fact that her mom was also a computer scientist, but wasn't being valued in the same way that she as a computer scientist in the US was versus in Iran. And then um, also the fact that she was seeing in her computer science classroom uh, in college that uh, women needed a group, and so she wanted to create that group, uh, and that sort of propelled her interest in this change-making space. And I think both of those seem to play really deeply into a lot of the work that she does. It it was just really, it's great to, to know someone for their research, but it's, almost better to get a deeper sense of who they are as a person and what drives that research too you know I like uh, what you said about
0: the change making space too because I feel like that's a lot of what we spent this interview talking about was that concept of change making and how we do it and what impedes it and then this concept of innovation uh, which is something that Lily spent a lot of time on even, you know, in her book, which is called Chasing Innovation. And this term innovation is something that I've been trying to think a lot about. And I don't, I, I don't know, always know what to do with, like similar to, to that word liberation, which we talked about and did some definition uh, exploration during the interview. But this concept of innovation and what are the limits of innovation? When does innovation get in its own way? Is everyone using the same word, like the same uh, meaning behind it when they say the word innovation? Is it always like unbridled capitalism or can there be intentional innovation? Uh, There was this very particular quote that I wanted to pull out from uh, our interview where Lily said, words, pencils, and silicon, they are all ways of doing things. And for me, that was such a Gut punch, almost, of the ways that I might value certain forms of innovation, um, maybe certain shiny forms of innovation. You know, the smaller the uh, chip, right, or the faster the processor, um, or you know, Elon Musk going to space, right. All of these things, I'm like, oh, that's that's cool, that's cool. Um, but is it really getting to the heart of this, you know, liberative message? Is it really getting to the heart of the problems? That we're trying to solve uh, in community, or is it distracting
1: <laughs> and getting in the way? And it's interesting too, talking about these ideas and something that we were asking Lily about yes, it's it's important to bring these ideas up and to think through the uh the relationship between liberation and power and technology and design. But then if we as you know HCI researchers and PhD students are thinking about it, how do we get everyone thinking about it, everyone in this space, in the technology space, in computer sciences, in, in design. Uh, and I'm just still so curious about that. I, I don't think there's a, a one-off uh, answer to this question yet, but uh, hopefully we're slowly trying to to build uh, our way towards that solution. I think that uh, part
0: of our way towards that solution is um, laying bare or laying more transparent these uh, systems of production that we talked about with Lily, especially with the work that she's doing with uh, Turkopticon um, and looking specifically at the Mechanical Turk project. Uh, because what Lily's asking us to do is to ask you know, who gets credit for the work that's really being done. And uh, let's really shine a light on the companies that are doing this exploitative uh, work really for, for profit margins. Right. And let's try to build uh, a better system that allows people to really get credit for the work that they are doing in a way that's equitable.
1: Yeah. And all of this really just brings to light this idea that design is super powerful and that power can be great. It can be dangerous. It can be harmful. It can be so many things. And this is actually another thing that I was feeling immediately during and after the interview Uh, A sense of empowerment, which uh, can be both good and bad, coming from a computer science perspective and background and also a little bit of design as well, I feel a lot of privilege as a computer scientist, and I also feel really powerful. Uh, I think that the ability to code and design and make tools, even ones like Mechanical Turk, that is such a powerful skill to have. Um, And that can be obviously used in very, very harmful ways. Um, But if we give the right tools to computer scientists and to designers and to thinkers and educators, then maybe we can turn that uh, potentially harmful future into empowerment in the sense that these people have the ability to make positive change.
0: So what you're saying, Jess, is that really, this is all just Spider-Man, right? This is all just with great power comes great responsibility. Um, so really, instead of these interviews... Was that Spider-Man or, yeah. or was that no, Churchill? No, it was, that was absolutely Spider-Man. One of them might have been no, said No, I don't that. think so. I think that was absolutely <laughs> Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> which which I, think, I think is the right place to, uh, to end this particular episode of the Radical AI <laughs> podcast. Uh, is with, uh, maybe one day we'll get a chance to interview Spider-Man. Uh, But again, we want to thank Dr. Uh, Lily Arani for joining us today on this episode. And for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at
1: RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay Stay radical. radical like expired
0: <laughs> Churchill
1: David I said it
0: first <laughs> I don't I don't think it's supposed to be absolutely like <laughs> that <bad>. okay <laughs>